Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And uh, today I'd like to start out reminding you visit wealthformula.com for all the resources that you miss out on, including being on uh, my uh, email list, my distribution list, all those things, uh, free books from me, from George Newberry. All sorts of resources available to you at, at uh, wealthformula.com. So make sure to check that out uh, because you're missing out. I also want to point out to you that there is a course and a mastermind group and um, a Facebook group, all of this stuff. You can check that all out at wealthformularoadmap.com. And uh, I would love to, to have you part of a Wealth Formula Network. And uh, part of that is also a bi-weekly mastermind call, which I think has been uh, pretty fun for people. I mean, it's nice to have uh, some of these opportunities to talk to one another, etc. Speaking of that, I want to announce to you right now, this is very exciting, the inaugural first ever Wealth Formula meetup, which will be occurring on March 2nd. 2019, that's of course is coming March, it's a Saturday, in Scottsdale, Arizona at the, uh, at the at a hotel over there, forget what the name is, but uh, anyway, you can check out all of the details at wealthformulaevents.com, that's uh, events with an S, so wealthformulaevents.com, but here's how it's going to roll, okay, so March 1st, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there, and um, whoever else gets there on the first, that evening, we're going to meet up for cocktails, the uh, hotel there where the event is. Uh, we're going to meet up sort of informally. The next day, tremendous educational opportunity. Uh, we've got some great speakers, including the legendary Ken McElroy, Rich Dad Advisor of Real Estate, Rich Dad Advisor for Taxes, Tom Wilwright. Dave Steele of Western Wealth Capital, which we will talk about more today. Uh, we've got Christian Allen, Damian Lupo, uh, and then we're gonna uh, we're gonna have panel discussions. We're gonna have case studies. We're gonna talk about all the tax strategies that are new to this Trump uh, tax law that people still really aren't taking full advantage of. And then we're gonna go on a bus tour. We're going to go check out a bunch of multifamily properties in the area. And then we finish the day again where we started the night before, which is cocktails again, this time on me. And so I want you to check it out. This is a really great opportunity. And, uh, you know, we just haven't done anything live. There's been a lot of, there's a lot of events out there that just really aren't worth going to. This one will be worth your time. It's dirt cheap too it's basically you can you'll be able to tell we uh, are not making any money on this especially since we've got cocktails a room a bus tour and uh, lunch and everything included in this so once again check that out at wealthformulaevents.com and uh, come and join us say hello say hello and join wealth formula nation as we bring in the new year Let's shift a little bit, talking about uh, Western Wealth Capital. Well, let's let's take a step back in, in time for a moment, and you can join me, me as a young medical student back in my 20s. You know, I remember being in medical school thinking that 
you know what? I really want to be a surgeon. And um, the idea of it really appealed to me very much. And probably as much as anything else, because I felt like I had the personality of a surgeon. I wanted that, you know, I was sort of an alpha male. I also felt like, you know, I kind of wanted, to, I wanted to be a surgeon. I wanted that, uh, that person, you know, that, that persona that followed that. In fact, you know, I ended up in neurosurgery it shows you how much persona I was actually looking for initially. But, you know, I have to admit, and I don't know that I've really ad- ever admitted this to out loud, that at the time in med school, when I was making this decision to go to surgery, I felt very insecure. You see, growing up, my dad, you know, who's a, who's a real estate guy, but he is, and what he was and is, is about as white collar as they get. I mean, I didn't learn anything about cars. I never put up any shelves. I mean, I didn't hook up the TV. I didn't do anything. I mean, the only, I mean, my dad had somebody to do every one of those types of things, and I, I didn't learn from him because he didn't know how to do anything. So the only reason I had to think that I was, you know, any good with my hands at all was the fact that I actually excelled in hand-eye coordination sports like ice hockey. And um, some may not call it a sport, but I will. Table tennis a.k.a. ping pong. So as much as I loved the idea back then of being a surgeon, I had this underlying fear and sort of this, you know, this sense that maybe I would not be good at it, that I'd be horrible at it, even though that I fancied myself that way and that's the person I wanted to be. And in the beginning, I kind of was horrible at it. In medical school, all the guys that I was, fr- you know, friends with, who I wanted to hang out with, who my favorite rotation, etc., they were all orthopedic surgeons. And the reason was because they were kind of like fun-loving guys, like sports, you know. And to me, that sounded like the perfect marriage, right? I mean, I like sports, I like surgery. The guys, were, it was like being part of a fraternity or something. It was just fun. The problem was, I went on that rotation. And as much as I love these guys, they were also like carpenters. They were guys who loved like, you know, tools and things. And at my core, I was not a carpenter at all. And I remember being on a rotation and this was really, again, guys were just great and they had so much fun. And this rotation, there was an orthopedic surgery resident uh, who uh, I was doing, um, uh, he was doing a leg amputation and some guy was basically you know, it was below the knee amputation, some guy who basically had a dead leg from diabetes or something. And the resident gave me, um, gave me the saw, you know, one of these electric saws to amputate the guy's leg. And having that tool in my hands was not pretty. It was not pretty at all. And all I can say is fortunately the leg was supposed to come off anyway. Um, and uh, it was no big loss that it didn't do a very good job. But eventually, you know, I realized that there were certain things that I seemed to be a little bit better at, uh, particularly what we call soft tissue surgery with no bones. You know, I felt like I was better with these sort of more fine movements than using power tools, uh, at least at the time. I mean, that was kind of what I felt like. It may have been really just the case that I just needed more experience with them. But anyway, that's one of the reasons I, you know, ended up first as a neurosurgeon. Although I will say, that the first time I ever used a drill, now this is true, it was in medical school, drilling through someone's skull on my first neurosurgery rotation. So, you know, I actually got really good with that drill after a while, and it was really the only power tool I really ever got to like because it was really the only one that we really used. But I remember getting uh, so confident at one point with this idea of this drill, and I kind of got this confidence, right? And so I literally went to the hardware store and bought a drill and put up shelves in my apartment for the first time. (laughs) So anyway, okay, so this all sounds totally messed up. I know it, and I know it, but it's true. Uh, But the good news for me was that there was a, um, you know, there was this learning curve. I had to get my hands wet, no pun intended, but pretty soon I became a pretty darn good surgeon. And in hindsight, the fear 
and anxiety of not being good at surgery was, well, it was kind of silly. I mean, you know, as it turned out, becoming a good surgeon was really no different than becoming good at anything else in life. And that is true. I mean, it, it took practice. You know, it's funny. I, I watch my daughter at school right now and, and, um, and, uh, you know, she's a very talented, smart, you know, nine-year-old. I, mean, I have three daughters, but I'm talking about the oldest one. And she is uh, really, you know, she's a gifted kid and she's good at math. But whenever anything becomes like sort of difficult and she doesn't, you know, get it right away, she freaks out and she says, I'm not good at this. Well, the reality is being good at something is, is like pushing through that initial layer of it being hard pushing through it, barreling through it and getting and doing something over and over again, right? And um, in the case of most surgical procedures, you sort of do the same uh, maneuvers every case. After my neurosurgery stint, which lasted a couple years, ultimately I end up leaving because of the hours. Uh, I just, you know, I couldn't. I just liked my sleep too much. I couldn't do it. But anyway, I spent some time after that. I trained um, and ultimately ended up doing uh, facial cosmetic surgery. uh, And I ended up doing a lot of facelifts. And before I did that, I watched some masters do hundreds of operations. And there was this one guy I watched that was particularly interesting to me because his results were so good and so consistent. And what I noticed when I watched him carefully was that he did everything the same way every single time. In fact, I could literally count, and I did count, six discrete maneuvers that he did for every patient on each side. And I just, I, 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 I could recognize him. I wrote them down. This is how he does it. And once in a while I'd ask, why are you doing that? Well, I did it because of this. All right, but there's only really six things that you did. Yeah, I guess that's about right. Well, when I started doing my own cases, I did those six steps. And for the very first case, believe it or not, to me at least, my results were outstanding. They might have been one of the, you know, (laughs) best results I've ever seen. And during my career, I did several hundred facelifts and I did them exactly the same way Every single time I got faster, more precise, and there were fewer and fewer wasted movements. And you know what was funny about it is that I kind of got recognized for that. And my patients, they thought I was some kind of an artist. But in truth, I was more of a robot than an artist. I mean, I am honestly probably one of the least artistic people I know. I can't draw. I can't paint. I can't do anything. I'm 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 like good at doing the same thing over and over again. So anyway, this experience of what I guess I would call mastery was actually really profound for me. You know, I I felt like I discovered a larger secret in the process of being uh, becoming uh, a a very very good facelift surgeon. And that secret was that you could master just about anything if you cracked the code. And once you crack the code, you do it over and over again, the same way every single time. And it just gets better and better. And that's all that mastery is. That's truly what I believe it is. So today my guest is special. Okay. She is really special. She's at a relatively young age. She has become a master at her craft Uh, and has shown the same kind of consistency with her financial outcomes as I did at the peak of my surgical career with surgical outcomes. Her name is Janet LePage, and she's actually a computer scientist by training who literally cracked the code to successfully become a master multifamily real estate investor. And we'll learn how she did it when we come back. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. 
It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is a rock star. Uh, she won't admit it, but her name is Janet LePage, and she is the founder and CEO of Western Wealth Capital, simply one of the best multifamily operators out there, in my opinion, and a group that, because of that, I work with closely, uh, and my uh, investor group, the Accredited Investor Club, works with closely. In 2017, Janet was named Entrepreneur of the Year in the category of real estate and construction by Ernst & Young. In 2016, Janet was named one of business in Vancouver's 40 under 40. Uh, of course, that means she's younger than me, which, you know. <laughs> and she was also awarded the, uh, I don't know the, the French pronunciation here, but the Veuve Clicquot, sounds like a champagne, Canadian New Generation Award which recognizes young female entrepreneur. Janet, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So it's great to have you on. Let's start talking about a little bit about your background. I mean, you kind of skyrocketed into this world and have just blown it up. Where do you come from, Janet? I, I know you're a Canadian, and how did how did you end up getting into real estate? <laughs> okay, let me see if I can uh, get this started. I um, I grew up in a really small town um, and came to Vancouver, uh, British Columbia for uh, school. I have a double major in computer science and, and business, as well as a project management professional certification. Uh, you know, I, I think back when I was um, 23, I told my dad that I wanted to be the largest mobile home park owner in North America. And, you know, as a mother now, I think back and he went, all right, Jenna, good idea. <laughs> the time I was, you know, I had started my corporate career, um, you know, uh, always with the some of the biggest companies in Canada. TELUS um, is, a, is the second largest telecommunications company um, and moved through my career in in for a decade in really large um, um, corporations. Yeah. But there was something about the passive income. There was something about, you know, I'd watch these other folks and really I wanted to be the CEO of one of the largest corporations in Canada. That was, that was my goal at that time, as well as apparently, you know, owning a lot of mobile home parks. But um, what I saw from that was you, when you don't go to work, you don't get paid. Right. Yeah. And you get, you learn that very quickly. And so I wanted to be able to go to work or not go to work, but always get paid. And that's really where on went, I need to find a way to have passive income. <clears throat> I bought a house when I was young and never really paid attention to it. It was 20, I was think I was about 22, 23. And a year later you get that property assessment. And I look at it and like the value of the house had gone way up. And I thought, you gotta be kidding me. I've done nothing yeah. here, but all of a sudden I have this value. Yeah. So I took a line of credit and um, I got a real estate coach for a year. Um, we went once a week and we went through everything you could imagine with real estate. It was tax liens to commercial, retail, multifamily, flipping, holding, being a shark. And his real model was, Janet, everything's a deal. Everything's a deal. But what makes it a deal? So he he didn't let me ever pass on a property. We could never pass on it. We had to make it such that a structure that it was a deal. And we would meet and we probably walked over a hundred different properties together. And as we'd go through this, and one of the best things that I learned from that is often when we're, when we're negotiating an asset, I'll walk away and we walk away a lot, but, but I'll get it to a point where I go, if I got these terms, if I got this price, this is a home run deal. 
Right. And I've always approached it that way. So that was a great learning. Um, moved into 2008 market is what we thought the Canadian dollar was at prime, you know, with the US dollar. And I wanted cash flowing homes and off I went to Phoenix and I bought two and I thought they were great deals at the time. They weren't. But from that, uh, about six months later, uh, I went to the auction steps and I flipped my first multifamily home. I had done my research. I had seen it happen. And I believed that if I could get on there, buy a house and flip it and put it back on the market for the exact same price as the foreclosure right next door, there were still first time home buyers. There were still people buying houses and they would buy mine over, over the one next door. And so I used my last $10,000 I had, put it on the auction steps, won a house, borrowed the rest at 18% interest. And 20 days later, I flipped that house. Yeah. Interesting. And that was sort of the beginning of my true real estate career all while I was growing in my corporate job. So you ended up Obviously, you had an interest in mobile home parks, and you ended up- <laughs> Still creating... do. I still do. Yes. Yeah, me too. I just, <laughs> we, we got to talk about that, because that's really, that's something that we need, we really want to get into. But but right now, you know, it's primarily a, a it is a multifamily uh, business that you have created alongside with your partner, Dave Steele. Tell us a little bit about why multifamily- you know, obviously you started with single family houses, presuming the scale was part of the issue, but then there is the mobile home parks. Why, why multifamily right now? Why multifamily? And I, I'm going to answer both. Why multifamily anytime and why multifamily right now? Uh, what I saw with the houses is that when you have a single dwelling or a smaller number of people, if someone's in there, they're paying rent, you're covering your mortgage. If they're not, there is no income. There is no coverage. It's either it's a zero and one, go right back to computer science. It's either you're making money or you're feeding the pot. When you move over to a multifamily property, you know, you will always have vacancies, but you can have a number of people, you know, moved out or not in that property, and you're still covering all your expenses. You do not need to feed that pot. And that was a very good learning when I was flipping those 58 homes over just over two years before I got into the multifamily it was like, gosh, you know, I, I don't want to be in a risk position of a zero or one. I'm either making it or I'm not. In the multifamily, you know, in all real estate spaces in multifamily and mobile home parks, very similar. You know, you've, you've got a lot of residences on this one parcel of, uh, of land is just the reduction in risk. And so much of our program and so much of why we go in multifamily is because I'm very risk adverse. It's, it's something I go, I can control this. I can have this many people not in my property and still make all of my expenses and still cover everything. And I'm not in a risk position. Multifamily right now, you know, uh, when I say, should you be buying multifamily everywhere? No, I mean, I wouldn't buy it everywhere. But in the cities where... Uh, where we are buying, it's on the premise of people need jobs. And if there's a job, they need a bed. They need a bed, they need a roof over their head. So if there's more jobs being created, then there are beds available. You have a supply and demand issue. In the single family housing market, that means the housing value goes up because more people are bidding on it. In the, re in the rental space, it means more people need, need, need to rent from you than uh, is available. And why I really like certain cities for, for rental properties is when you layer on top, hey, there's a lot of job growth. What kind of jobs are going there and what kind of people, what kind of housing will they need? And when you're looking at service level industry, when you're looking at long-term renter, when you're looking at first-time renter, you know, before they can buy a house, if you can marry that in that growth, that's exactly what you're looking for. In Phoenix, as an example, 40% of your immigration of people getting jobs are service level industry or first time renter. So if you can go and buy the product that aligns with that, you are continuing to keep yourself in a really strong demand for rent position. So that's why I like multifamily because it's the lowest risk real estate space and second, when you can align that job growth with the type of product, you've really protected yourself from a lot of outside influences that you can't control. One of the things that I, I really like about the way you guys do this, and this obviously stems from your background, is it's scientific, right? This is not a 
willy-nilly kind of let's I think we can do a value add situation. How much of that approach that Western Wealth Capital has taken stems from your background as really a computer scientist? You know, it's funny. I must be able to touch and feel it. A has to equal B or A plus C equals, you know, A plus B has to equal C and I can touch it and feel it. In the buildings that we buy, you know, I have competitors, other groups go, yeah, if you paint the building, you're going to be able to raise rents. I go, yeah, of course, because people are going to think it's more attractive. But how much? How can you quantify that this building being painted is going to get you X? So I do not model the extra things we do, whether it's paint, playground, nicer pool, uh, you know, some fun barbecue or, or common areas. I can't put a value to that. I know that it's going to make the place more desirable to live, but I do not model a value increase. Where I do model a value increase is if I do a washer and dryer, I am going to make $50 increase in rent. That person, I'm going to spend somewhere between $2,000 to $3,000 installing that washer and dryer, and they're going to pay me $50 a month. That's going to translate to $600 a year, and that's going to translate in value increase in that property somewhere between $12,500 to $15,000 a unit for spending two to $3,000. It's black and white. I do about 100 a month across our portfolio. Um, we've done thousands of them over the last um, few years, and I know it. So I can model that in with certainty. And, yeah. and, and that's the same with an interior um, upgrade, you know, new appliances, fixtures, flooring, countertops, blinds, a two-tone paint. I know that if I do that, I get anywhere, depending on the package that I put together, $75 to $150 for a spend of about $5,000. And so if I do that enough times, no matter what I do to the rest of the property, I don't need to model in a growth. I know if I do 100 of those, I'm going to make this much in return. And that I can say to my investors and look them in the eye because I'm doing it every single month in those exact same cities with a building just down the street. Right. And, you know, and that's it's it's interesting the way you talk about that, because I think, you know, a lot of people think about <clears throat> real estate and I think in less scientific terms than that. But ultimately, what we're trying to do here uh, and what you're what what Western Wealth Capital is trying to do here is to create value and to be able to put that into terms that is really not, you know, there, there's really there's strong data that you can use to do that. And, it, and the more you do it, you can work out the kinks over time and then sort of hone in on a formula that works. And that sounds like kind of you know, the approach that you've taken over time. Is that uh, fair? Without question, almost to a detriment. I'm so, I, and I agree with you. It's your, it's your background and training that I need to be able to touch and feel it because I have to sleep at night and know I can make this happen. And I, so when I put values or numbers to it, I can see it tangibly and feel it. And then I can sleep because I know I can perform that. The when, when in, you know, I've had groups go and go, but yes, you can make money off putting a spray fountain. And I just think to myself, probably, but I don't know that number exactly. And if yeah. I don't know it, it doesn't go in. It is a very scientific approach we take very much. The art of it is the speed in which we execute. Right. Because when you talk about risk, and everyone talks about risk. So we've touched on why, you know, why multifamily and why, you know, you see that de-risk by having so many units and people covering the, the rents as, as, as things fluctuate. But the other part is the art in which you create the value. You could create the value very slowly by only doing one or two washers and dryers a month. You're going to very slowly increase the value of your property and you're, you're, you're exposing yourself to risk from the value purchased it at to the value it is right now. But if we can bring in that value very, very quickly, and move that property to a new net operating income or an exponentially um, increased value by installing those washers and dryers very quickly, upgrading units very quickly, doing it while people are living in the unit, forget waiting for them to move out, then you have also on top reduced your risk of your investment very quickly by incre increasing the value of it without worrying about is the market going to appreciate? Are we going to be able to increase rents just naturally? Forget all that. Our models work without that. 
when we're modeling rent growth, we model it at about half of what the market predicts is going to be because we don't need to do that. But that's the art. And when you look at many of our competitors, or even when I was starting out, I would say I wasn't as fast. I was with speed wasn't an aha moment until somewhere in our 10th or 15th deal where I was going, gosh, well, if we could do this in half the time, we're going to increase the value of the building in half the time and we're going to de-risk ourselves. So we continue to hone and hone how quickly we can execute. So to me, that is our art. The science is the black and white. You spend A, you get B, you increase the value C. The art is how quickly you get to the C so you could tangibly realize your results. Yeah, and also the speed also, uh, as you say, creates, uh, uh, adds to that idea of taking risk off the table, particularly for for passive investors, right? For accredited, you know, for these accredited investors who are, are, are working in these deals, if they have money in the deal, why don't you talk a little bit about sort of your typical, because it's a very stereotypical business model. I've referred to this as the infinite return model because in part of the, um, you know, getting your your money out of the deal and into the next deal kind of approach that passive investors can take. Can you talk a little bit about what makes that possible? Sure. So, you know, as, as part of this, when you purchase that asset, when we, we're able to move it to a new, much higher value without waiting on the market, without waiting on rent growth, because we're moving that net operating income, we're increasing that income by putting in those washers and dryers, by putting in those um, interior upgrades. So we're moving the value of that asset at a pace that's not normal to market. But with that, then we have what's called supplemental finance. So as part of our loan agreements, we can go in and at the day we get that loan, they say, okay, we'll lend you actually up to 100% of um, the purchase price of the property. But right now, because of your debt constraints or where the income's at today, we'll give you 70% loan to value. But every 12 months, you can, or any time after that, you can come back to us and say, hey, look at our new value. And we will give you back a portion of your proceeds or we'll increase your debt at that point and refinance that money back to you to continue because we have moved the overall value of the property up. And what we do is um, we're able to return that to our investors. And I have investors, um, investment partners that literally have used the same money on their original deal and they're into their fourth investment with the same money they had given us back. We're averaging about 20% return of equity within, actually, I'm wrong. Sorry. It's about 50% within 20 months. Yeah. And continues up. We have buildings. That with, within how many months? Up. Within how many months? 20. Okay. Wow. So, so let me just, because, because I am very familiar with this. Let me recap. Because <laughs> this is, this is what I find just, you know, fantastic. We always talk about these terms, Janet, um, in our, in our, uh, on this show, we talk about velocity and leverage, right? Velocity is how quickly you get your money back. Leverage is obviously using bank money, um, and whatever other source of, of, of money that you can use to, to increase your returns. So what Janet is saying here is that, um, just to recap here is first of all, typically what you see in models, um, uh, a lot of times, and it's not uncommon for a group to say, okay, we're going to, uh, create these value add uh, components, and then five or six years down the line, we're going to do a refinance. And that, because we've added so much uh, equity, we've added so much value to this property, and the net operating income goes up, we're going to return, you know, the um, capital uh, to the investor. They still have ownership, but they might get, you know, most of their, if not all of their capital off the table at that point, rendering two things. It's taking that initial risk off the table for the for a passive investor. But the other thing is it allows that same money to get deployed into the next deal and therefore creating a tremendous amount of velocity of money. What Janet is pointing out is something that's really unique, and I had never seen this before, which is a type of loan that allows, effectively, you don't need to refinance. All you need to do is you get appraisal. So so to Janet's point about speed, the quicker you can just cre- you know create value, you can start pulling out 
equity based on, you know, how much value you've created. And what she's telling you is that instead of waiting, you know, typically, you know, five or six years to get your money back at all, within about 20 months, they're averaging half of your money back in your pocket. Well, guess what? That can go right back into a deal. Did I get that right, Janet? I'm sorry to... Yeah. Yeah. You did. You know, we've had, and every deal does a little bit different, but we've had as high as 75% of our money refinanced in one year yeah. to sometimes it's 24 months before we go to it. It really depends on the business plan, but yes, we've had great, great success and it's a big part of our program. And it's really neat to watch our investment partners that we've had for four years now, seeing them actually continue to put that money. That's the Warren Buffett model, right? Yep. Of, of infinite wealth is, is using that same dollar continuing to have your ownership in the first asset and buying your next and your next. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that's the, that is, uh, in a, in a nutshell, the, the market, the, um, you know, I'll toot your horn the last time I saw anything, the uh, average annualized return because of this model was about 32% annualized return, which is phenomenal. Obviously past performance does not dictate future, but uh, that is something worth uh, noteworthy to talk about. The other thing um, I wanted to talk to you about was, you know, obviously there's a great track record here. You're someone who has lived and experienced through 2008. And, you know, I don't think anybody thinks that we're going to have another 2008 per se, but there are market cycles. There are cap rate compressions and decompressions. And you've, you know... You've alluded to this a little bit, but talk a little bit about that, because that's a question that we frequently get from people is saying, you know, a lot of a lot of groups, or a lot of people or investors have, for the most part, decided that real estate right now is too expensive to buy in any market. And so they're waiting for cap rates to decompress, for market cycles to turn. How what what is your uh, what is your you know, sort of your rebuttal to that argument and what does the model do to help buffer some of that potential downside? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, uh, it's it's funny, you know, you hear, you hear the constant thing about the cycle and, and where are we at. When we're buying, uh, what I think a lot of people don't see or what I know is what we don't buy, what we walk away from. Uh, if I was just entering uh, a market where I was, you know, a nobody or, you know, we, you know, we're the second largest uh, multifamily owner in Phoenix. And in the history of Phoenix, no one's ever entered that market and within three years become, um, you know, a really a, a nobody where I could barely get a, a broker to return my call to being the second largest owner. And that's really fared us very well in not only Phoenix, but the other four markets that we're in. It, it shows that we're here to play. And so, we're able to go in and look at a lot of a lot of potential opportunities and we walk away from more than we ever have before. So that's number one. You have to find the diamond in the rough. You had to kiss a lot of frogs. I do a course where it's, you know, the title is, you know, you got to kiss a lot of frogs yeah. and people don't see that. You only see the success stories that come out of it. But how much time, energy and front end work is put into finding the right deal, especially at this time, you have to be that much more diligent. So that would be my number one thing. Number two is when we talk about washers and dryers and when we talk about interior upgrades, this has nothing to do with where rent growth is. This has very little to do with, um, you know, yes, cap rate compression, if, if, if you believe, you know, if you, if you believe in that, but our ability to take this unit and move it to this price, forget all other factors is true. That is black and white. And so what we have to find is these assets where majority is untouched, what I call a classic blank slate ready for us to do our program on. And we're able to achieve those returns. We also model in increased um, you know, interest rates, which I believe are much higher than, than what, it, um, what we're going to be. We model in much higher vacancy rates than they're predicting or even exist. We model in, uh, you know, um, all of these other places, uh, higher delinquency than's ever there. We model in half the rent growth that they're, that the market's predicting. So you've got all of these, I, I call it like the lemon tree, right? So you've got right. never squeeze all your lemons dry. But when I'm modeling, 
I've got lemon over here, lemon over here, lemon over here, lemon over here that I have not squeezed to anywhere close to what the market's performing to. So if I'm wrong on one assumption, that's okay because I've, I've underperformed on all these other assumptions. So really my model is padded all over the place for what I don't know to be. But what I do know to be is I can get $50 in that rent increase. I can get the rent increase for that, um, for that, um, uh, you know, for that unit increase. Uh, the other thing that the metric that I didn't share, which I, I do believe plays into all of this that we're talking about is basically your affordability index. You know, every time I go for dinner with another group, a large group similar to us, and I say, guys, what do you look for when you're, you know, picking your markets? Because I'm always curious what metrics other people follow. What are you underwriting for? What, what's your prediction in, in interest rate increases? We talk about these things. And one of the things that's always prevailing um, is affordability index. What that actually means is how much a person has to pay for their cost of living out of every dollar they make in income. And if you look at the cities that we're in, there are many of the lowest affordability or highest affordability, if you will, on the, on, on the index. Phoenix is 22 cents on the dollar, whereas the United States is over 40%. So a 40 cents of every dollar goes to paying for your housing. So in the cities that we're in, there is a lot of room for people to be able to afford better housing. Uh, those rent increases that, you know, I get these investors go, but people can't afford the rent increase. They go, actually, when you look at all these other cities they could live in, their affordability to be able to pay more for housing is absolutely there. And so that's another piece that's not talked about in this big global, maybe there's going to be a downturn, maybe there's not. We're picking cities where really there is a lot of room to go in affordability and people have that to pay at this time as we're seeing, you know, these job growth. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to that extent, the, if you're adding value, if you're increasing rents, uh, if you're increasing income on the property, I mean, I guess, uh, in that scenario, the worst case scenario is, uh, you, you hold on to the property in cash flow and, uh, and then sell it when, when, when you get a better price, right? I mean, isn't that kind of the downside? It is, especially at the speed at which we go from point A, I just purchased it, to point B is this whole other level where you've got this much more increased cash flow, this much greater value. Absolutely. You can ride the wave. If you just buy something and do nothing, and now all of a sudden prices go down, well, now you're at a, a loss on your basis. But if we go from here to here, we've already pulled a huge amount of that risk out that, yes, maybe we go back a bit in value, but we, we haven't in introduced risk of loss. Right which is the biggest thing. Maybe you won't make the 32% or, or the 20% that we're, we're, we're you know, showing in our performa, but we're also really far from a, a loss position. Right. You know, and I've that's always, a great place to be. I've always kind of explained this uh, in a way that I think what I like about the model is that you, you know, it's fairly moderate leverage on, on the inside, right? 30, you know, about 32, 33% on average from what I've seen. But then immediately what you're doing is you're creating value. And what that does is effectively helps to deleverage further. So you're taking moderate leverage and then you're immediately going into value add, which de which deleverages further. And that creates this buffer that you're talking about. Correct. Exactly. So uh, obviously I'm a, I'm a big fan of what you're doing. Tell us a little bit of, also about some of the you know, there's some really good things that Western Wealth Capital has done uh, in the communities that it has um, has touched. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and, and why that, that's important to you? You know, um, the real estate industry has operated the same way for a long time. It's about making money. And I can't tell you how many properties I've walked onto and you look at it and the current owner doesn't care one bit about who lives in unit 101 could care less worse as a mother as a female um, doesn't care that the lights are burnt out so that when she's got her kids and it's after dark and carrying her groceries doesn't care that it's scary it is scary as a female i know this doesn't care that there's not a uh you know a cover over the playground so in the summertime the kids are burning and you're supposed to sit somewhere and watch your children doesn't think about those things 
in when I came on uh, and started doing this, not at first it was about making money for me and, and don't get us wrong. We are, a, you know, we're here to manage the wealth of our investors and partners and increase that wealth. But what I saw was you can do both. And not only can you do both, but if you do one well, you're going to ha- create greater wealth. Right. And so what we have at Western Wealth Capital and, you, you know, many companies, they call it the three-legged stool. One of them is, you know, creating wealth for, for our investment partners without question. But the how is what I'm here to show the real estate industry that you can do it differently. You can do this on human terms and not just term sheets alone. And this industry, I'm hoping, is part of who we are, can start to see what we are doing and, and follow lead and do it on a more human what I call more human terms. So when you start putting in the lights, when you change those playgrounds, um, when you make a community safe and a place where, you know, these lifetime renters or long-term renters have pride of rentership, they tell their friends and they don't move. Do you know the single greatest expense you have on a property is someone moving in and someone moving out. If you can increase the rents for the person currently living in that property without them moving, you are winning all over the place. And to do that, you need them to have pride of rentership. And you know what? When they move out, the walls aren't going to be kicked in. They cared about the interior. So even when we do have to turn that unit, prove it, it's not beat up because they were proud to live there. So that's one piece. And I'll talk a little bit about the programs we have for that. The second one is, you know, property management, the people that live every day and work on those properties and and do the plumbing and and do the landscaping and pick up the property and have to interact with these residents every single day. They have hard jobs. They're hard work. We are in cities that are hot in the summer and you're outside all day long and you're not recognized very often by the owners of these properties. So your morale overall, generally speaking, is not very high in property management. But just imagine if we gave them a workplace, an environment where they could go home and tell their children, hey, I was recognized today. I have um, maintenance staff on some of our properties where when someone does a great job, it's recognized and an email goes out to the Western Wealth Capital executive team, recognizing them along with the owners of the property management company, the regionals of the property management company. And we all reply and say, wow, thank you for what you've done. And we've had comments back where I've done this for 28 years and I don't have a single owner that has ever even shaken my hand, said thank you. That, you know, it's it's unbelievable. Think of how much that person makes such a difference in your overall expenses in, in making our residents' uh, property a better place. So if we can show that um, you can do these things and you can, we're proving it. Our, our results are at the top of the charts. I can't tell you how many brokers when I come in and they go to look at our properties to sell and they go, how are you operating this so cheap? My gosh, you have some of the highest rents. And I said, because I'm just treating people well and being focused on it. But the programs that we have on top of that, we have two flagship programs. One is called We've Got Your Back. And in the summer, every property on the same day from four to six provides, we make available a backpack with the local school supply list for that property, stuff with all the school supplies they need. So they, each child can start the first day of school off on the right foot. And we don't buy those. The management, the property management employees on that property go, they go to the Walmart, they pack them themselves because this is a gift that they can give to these children and these families that they see every day. And if they can't afford that backpack or they could use a leg up, we're able to hand it to them. So we're creating a community and we are also creating the possibility that a child can show up confident. And we all know that if they're confident, we're making space for them to learn. And that's an unbelievable thing um, that we're able to give both, but the payback to our financial wealth is unbelievable at the same time as creating the right thing to do. The other thing is um, rent-free Christmas. So we allow the management staff to get together and they have exactly two minutes to pick a family on a property that could use free rent in the month of December so that they could take that money and create a Christmas memory that they otherwise wouldn't be able to have. Now, what does that do? And why do I say two minutes? Because that staff knows, they know that family, they interact with them they've seen them, they've seen their hardship. 
uh, you know, one of the families was a mom with three children and, and she became a widow within six weeks unexpectedly, you know, this year. So she's, she's trying to figure out how to be a, you know, a single mom, how to, you know, heal herself, never mind her children and try to get through Christmas and afford everything. And we're able to give her this gift. And, and what that does with our, our, our community, our property management community is they, they feel like they've been part of helping someone. And you know how hard they work on that property because of that. Yeah, It's a win all around. And so over the last three years, we've been able to give back to our properties over $170,000 in, um, in giving. That's created um, tremendous heart, uh, really helped people in need, and also drove financial gain for our investors. And to me, that's the perfect three-legged stool. It's a win on all fronts. And it's a way to show this entire industry that you can do this on human terms and not term sheets alone. Truly a win-win situation. Janet, again, I want to thank you very much uh, for being on Wealth Formula Podcast today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. We'll be right back. Now, welcome back to the show, everyone. If you want to learn more about the Western Wealth Model, uh, you certainly can go to wealthformula.com, go to the investment opportunities category and watch the webinar on infinite returns. That is the model that, that they are so good at. And for those of you in Investor Club, you already know about Western Wealth Capital. We've done a lot with them. And in fact, we're in the middle of an equity race right now. I should also point out that uh, Janet's partner, uh, Dave Steele, will be speaking along with Tom Wilwright and Ken McElroy the Titans of Multifamily Real Estate, uh, which is our first Wealth Formula meetup. You can go to wealthformulaevents.com to check that out. I want to see you there. I want to see you there on the first in the evening. I want us to get some drinks, hang out all on the second, and have a good time and talk to some really, really smart people while we learn. Um, so do that. And uh, finally, if you're an accredited investor and these kinds of things are appealing to you, you know, it's time to like go to wealthformula.com, sign up for the accredited investor list and, you know, fill out the survey and, and then and we'll talk on the phone. All right. So definitely do that. Investing is something, you know, uh, if you're sitting on the sidelines, you're intimidated. It's like anything else. You know, you, you just do it and you get good at it. And you master it. Anyway, that's it for me today. This is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Safe You with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.